Hello, welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the middle of the Midwest pontificate on news, politics, and other current events. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. Craig, big news this week. We had Trump indicted. It seemed like O.J. Simpson and the Bronco chase, like all yeah. news media was focused 24-7 on that indictment following his plane, the the car ride, you know, and it was just, it was nonstop the entire day. And we didn't have live cameras in the courtroom, but we no. did get still photos. Yeah. So we were able to see the expression on his face. We got to hear from <laughs> the attorneys afterwards, which he has a very colorful legal team because his, one of his head attorneys is Joe Tacopina. I love that guy. Who's this like brazen, like New York yeah. lawyer who's been around for a while, used to be on a lot of the court Just TV looks like shows. every mob a lawyer in every movie you've ever right. seen. Right. Exactly. I mean, it doesn't have complete it, cliche. It fits the bill, right? I mean, if Trump's going to ha- you know, yeah. hire a lawyer, like this guy seems like. That's who I'd would be yeah but it's interesting because he kind of butts heads with the rest of the legal team which is a little bit more polished and buttoned up i mean yeah it's the guys that just doesn't want to scream and shout all the time right but i what was your takeaway in terms of how things went down in court like it was fairly routine there were no surprises the charges were exactly what everybody said you know there was i think a lot of hope that there would be some type of like larger underlying charge to kind of pin all this together which there wasn't like all 34 charges are related to the falsification of business documents so that's that's what we have yeah i think you know first to echo what you said the, the whole media circus around Watching his his motorcade go to the airport, watching him get on the plane, watching the plane take off. I thought that was a bit over the top, unnecessary, and unneeded. And the media doesn't learn, right? They do this over and over and over again, and they give Trump the attention he wants. This is what he wants. He wants all eyes focused on him. Like I mean, with Trump— there is no such thing as bad publicity. All publicity is good publicity, and he thrives on this, and that's what we saw with the spectacle. I will say I was a little bit encouraged by the fact that the crowds of supporters in Manhattan were not as large as what many thought might be or what was forecasted, so a little bit depressed turnout there. You had some of the uh, you know usual suspects, and by usual suspects, I mean Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos. She didn't that have arrived. the day she thought she was going to no, have. No, she didn't. I, I guess she was expecting like a red carpet rollout. And I think she was. There were actually more counter protesters yeah. than actual Trump supporters, and they, you know, belittled her and heckled her, and she quickly hightailed it out of there. She didn't stay long. She was not used to getting heckled, even I, though she does the heckling yes. most often. I think Trump Trump won the first part of the day. The media coverage of the of the flight to New York. That was the highlight for Trump, I think, that day. Because you had, he, he got in there in the middle after the noon, so you had a full four to six hours of, of media coverage all talking about topics Trump wanted to talk Some about. Some of it was even so uh, ridiculous. I, there was, I can't even remember which news source it was, but there was one news source that went into the mundane details of the peanuts that he had on his flight. The snacks. The snacks. The, the luggage right. being loaded. <laughs> like, I are mean, you kidding me? This, <laughs> this was, th- that was the obvious, most ridiculous part Ugh. of it. Trump walking up the stairs, you know, by himself to get on the plane. That right. was all staged. Trump had the opportunity to do this over Zoom if he wanted to. He chose not to. The whole thing was 
was completely not needed. Trump wanted that because he wanted the, the photo op and he wanted the talk track, especially on Fox News and conservative media as he boarded that plane and and had the the ride to, to New York. Once he got into into the facility in New York, inside the courthouse, I think that's when things started to turn against him. We have that shot of him coming out after he's been mugshot, fingerprinted, when he walked out and turned directly into the courtroom. I was watching Fox News at the time and they were all fired up thinking that Trump would take the opportunity to step up to a camera that was placed there for him to give a small statement from the time he left being fingerprinted and booked before he went into the courtroom. He didn't take that opportunity, and he looked like he was really not having a very good time when he stepped out of that that courtroom. No, the dour expression on his face and the marquee photos from the courtroom— say it all pretty much too. like then after he gets out of the courtroom again he does not address the people at the camera that was set up for him to do that at the courtroom no comments he did not stop outside the courtroom like he had indicated i believe when the indictment first came down that he would he kind of just scurried back to to mar-a-lago then we have this speech he gave at night after the indictment we were warming up talking through. I, I don't. I can't watch those speeches anymore. They're just rambling repeats of speeches that he's given multiple times in the past. This one was followed that that same vein, kind of just full of grievance, full of odd statements about people participating in this trial, statements about the judge's wife, statements about the judge's His daughter, daughter. Um, and just, then he just he kind of like throws all of the investigations yeah. together, right? Because he also commented on. Uh, the uh, Jack Smith, the yes. special counsel in the DOJ investigation, which nobody understands what he was trying to say yeah. about him. Because like, the insinuate. facts of these cases don't matter. No, it's all the same to him. It's, it's all the world against me. Right. And I think what, what I saw, what, what I wanted to see out of Trump and what I expected to see out of Trump was a little bit more of a, of a 20, what we saw in the 2016 campaign. I thought he would be a little bit more fired up. I thought his his physical presence would be a little bit more... Um, kind of emotional. He he was just flat all around. There wasn't any fire behind him. There wasn't any emotion in what he was saying. It was like he was just going down the teleprompter, to going through all of the, the the grievance hits of the past, and that's kind of all he had to offer at that point in time. And wasn't he re- reading directly from the teleprompter the, the entire, entire time? time? Like he did not, yep. you know, deviate at all from the script, which is also telling because he tends to ad lib, yeah. and to do that frequently. So for the indictment itself, a lot of people were falling into that. Let's wait and see what this is. Let's see what the charges are. Let's not get out over our skis. There was a lot of of talk in the media about maybe there was going to be something extra into this indictment that we didn't know about. And from what I've seen in the indictment, that just did not pan out. My understanding of what the bulk of this indictment is, is these are about payments to Stormy Daniels and uh, Karen McDougal. This is about a payment to his doorman, which happened, I think, in, again, sometime previous, prior to the election, and some underlying crime that these crimes connect into, which was not stated by Alvin Bragg in the indictment. Overall, right. I was extremely disappointed with what Bragg laid out. I was disappointed with his presentation, his statement of facts. None of it seemed to answer any questions, and it left the main question still out there. What is the underlying crime, either state or federal, that makes all of these a felony, which is the reason why we're here? 
And he never adjusted. He did that. tell that story, right? And and granted, he didn't have to, but I think in this type of case, high profile, when you're talking about the former president of the United I think States, you, and have president, to. you have to. I mean, the American people are watching this. I mean, it's there's been no live coverage of an event like this in years. No. So how can you get away with not doing that? And I, I mean, at its base, and there is a you have to be able to tell that story because otherwise, it is confusing, and people are not going to understand it, and they're going to just assume that a lot of this is political or baked in to the cake. So the fact is the hush money payments uh, that were made to Stormy Daniels, Trump had Michael Cohen Cohen do that, make those payments personally, and then he reimbursed Michael Cohen uh, and classified that reimbursement as a legal fee. And so that is what basically started this uh, chain of events. And so the classification of that reimbursement is a legal fee is what got Trump in hot water yes. in the course of the campaign. And so it's relying on campaign finance law, federal campaign finance law, even though Trump was These not charged with that. I know. It's, so that's the underpinning of that. Because normally falsifying a business record saying that a hush reimbursement of a hush payment and classifying that as a legal fee would just be a misdemeanor under New York state law. Correct. But you can elevate that to a felony if you leverage the campaign finance federal campaign finance law which is essentially what he's doing but the most important part of the case that mechanism was not explained it was not explained at all that to me is a total fail by by Bragg. and i understand the legal maneuvering is i don't need to show my my cards until i until i i have to but this is the ex-president this is the 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 default leader of the republican party because he is the current leader for the nomination for president of the united states so craig explain to me we are now Six, seven years in, um, and I say seven years like from the time Trump came down yeah. that escalator because I count that as the beginning of that this beginning. new era. You know, there was the before and yeah. the net after, and we're in the after. So since Trump came down the escalator, why over and over and over again do people not learn, particularly people that are confronting Trump or in the public eye, that perception means everything. You have to tell the story. You have to weave the narrative. The only time I've seen that done really well is the January 6th hearings. Like, they got it then. Like, those members were able to do that on the committee. But outside of that, think back to uh, Mueller and that investigation. Again, failure to tell the story, the, the narrative. Over and over and over again, we see that that failure. And it's like you have to do that, especially in, with somebody like Trump and knowing the environment we're in and knowing the um, uh, the media landscape and the fact that things are going to twist and turn in the absence and the vacuum of yeah. information, disinformation will be created. And that's what we're seeing happening. The only thing I can think of is that all you have to say is Trump bad, Trump good. And you don't have to say any more than that. I think Alvin Bragg knows We've become so so polarized, especially over Trump, and he's such a uh, nobody has any gray area left about them with Trump anymore. No, all he has to do is say Trump bad, and fifty percent will snap right behind him in line. He doesn't have to give you a narrative. He doesn't have to tell you a story. He doesn't have to explain why this is urgent and important that we go through with this, because he knows all he has to do is say I've got Trump in court on a legal New York indictment. The rest is irrelevant. I have friends that for years, they, they have begged for this to happen. The kind of cathartic release from the Democrats over they finally charged Trump with something. The idea that he could possibly be held accountable for even something that's as flimsy as, uh, as this 
is just too attractive for for Democrats to pass up. And the sad part is you or I may want to know more about this, more about the legal theory and how this is going to play out. Most people on both sides, especially the Democratic side, that that's not relevant. Yeah. What's relevant is he's finally in court, and I'm going to get to tell the people that I've been saying for seven years that he's a bad guy. I get to put one more weight on that scale that Trump is a scumbag, and if this does it, so be it. I don't need to get into is this legit or not. Let, let me let me let me say this too. I heard on the way over here, um, uh, Hillary Clinton paid a fine to the FEC because the money that she had allocated to the uh, Steele dossier, she did not list that correctly to the as a campaign expense and as a fine. Barack Obama had two point two million dollars that he misallocated incorrectly on the books for uh, for uh, campaign money. You know what each of them did? They paid a fine. That's what these are. These are things that if this wasn't Trump and if the environment was it would be what it, what, what it is, he would pay a fine and we would move on. I yes, I, I although I do think you have to distinguish because even down at the state and local level with campaign finance regulations, there's a difference between like an unintentional error oversight and you sure. correct that and pay a fine versus intentionally lying or misleading on statements or falsifying records like with an intent. And that's the one different thing here is during the course of the campaign, this was all part of that catch and kill with you that's know the National Enquirer that David they were Packer. trying to keep yeah. this story at, until after the election, which is why even the hush payment to Stormy Daniels, but as cheap as Trump is, he was trying to delay making the payment until after the election where he could then say, well, then it's not even needed because it won't matter after I'm elected anyway. Well, and Bragg's whole theory of this case is ridiculous. If you read that 13-page report, I tried to get through most of it, he basically says this fraud is why Trump won the election. He frauded the United States, the citizens of the United States, and why he won the election is because of this fraud. That Which that, is not that, true. Yeah. That, that's silly on its face. That That's dumb. I don't think this case gets thrown out. But I do think this is going to be – it would not shock me if a lot of this got thinned down to a couple of small things. Yeah. And that's what they – that's what finally gets adjudicated. I, I think you're right. And I think those that have listened to us, we've said all along, this is not the case to watch. Like, the, you know, and again, if we had the power to choose which cases came first and were elevated, this is the last one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like this case has already been dissected and over-dissected enough, yeah. and, and there's not really much more to tell. And I do think that the Fulton County case and that indictment will drop this month Yeah, I um, think so. within a matter of weeks. And that is one where there is indisputable evidence, recorded evidence of Trump's uh, illegality, and, uh, and similar, the DOJ one is similar to that as well. So there is no question there. And then I think, you know, an even stronger case, and again, it wasn't Trump personally who was charged, but an even stronger case in this, which is connected to Trump, is the uh, criminal conviction last year of the Trump organization yeah, for which was tax fraud and criminal yeah. Yeah, fraud. Um, and that was Bragg as well. And that was Alan Weisselberg, who was Trump's, uh, you know, accountant and um, head financial guy. So, you know, Trump was not personally held liable for that, but it was his company. Yeah. And I think even that is more of a, I would focus on that even more than this one small I case. Agree. Cause this is. Brandon, yeah. let me say, since we rebooted the podcast, this feels like 
This feels like we're podcasting. One, it's a crisp hundred degrees in the mid of the middle <laughs> middle studio, and two, I, I think some of the band music might. I can hear that. It. Yeah, that that constant drum. I have to edit that. It's a busy out. night with the music yeah, lessons. So next this door. feels like we're actually back now. This is how most of these podcasts go down. I, I think that people are going to beat on the, the the legal theories on this, and if you follow legal Twitter, it seems to break down into two camps. Anybody who's like your Jonathan Turley's, your Sarah Isger, people who are legal scholars, academics, professors, things like that, they absolutely hate this case and rip it apart head to toe. And if you listen to those folks, they will. it would seem like there's a chance that this gets dismissed just outright. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. Then there's the Twitter folks that are much more familiar with New York law and have practiced New York law. Those folks seem to think this is a much stronger case than the folks who aren't familiar with the in and outs of New York. Then you throw onto it the generalized theory that a Manhattan jury will convict Trump of anything that's put in front of them, and you can kind of see the path forward of how this is going to go. What I didn't understand is... Why is the next time they're in court on this December? Well, part of, partially because the Manhattan legal system is notoriously slow. So, yes, this was the first case out the gate to indict. But their court system is backed up. There's long case backlogs. Yeah. So, yeah, December. I mean, you're likely not going to have a decision in this case till early next year, January or February. Well, we don't but. even get to hearing motions until August. Yeah. So this case is going to sit basically almost all summer until it gets picked up again. Well, and by I, the time August rolls around, who knows where we're going to be? Well, and it's very likely the other cases that are pending, the DOJ case, the Fulton County case, those cases will not only indict but go to trial and even have decisions before this case Could be. Yeah. Yeah, goes to a jury. So I think that's something to keep in mind. I think the other thing that MAGA is going to have to come to come to grips with is in his current, this current iteration of Trump, this is not the Trump that won the 2016 election. No. This man is a shell of himself. I don't know what podcast I was listening to where somebody talked about when you lose a national election, you don't come back from that. There's a reason why when most people lose the presidency, they are done. Yeah, it, normal people, it not breaks Trump. breaks yeah. <laughs> a lot of people. Trump just looks like he's looks like he's broken a little bit. He doesn't have the same energy. If I didn't know any better, I would say Trump is su- suffering from a lack of confidence right now. Yeah, well, I mean, the walls are closing in around him, right? It looks like it. And even if this case doesn't result in a felony conviction, maybe it goes down to a misdemeanor. He'll likely not have to serve jail time. He'll have to pay a fine. I think it's still, there's a good chance that he gets convicted. Not 100% certain, but a good chance. There's the other cases, and he knows that. Like, it, the, the problem is he has to run for president. The presidency is a shield if he were to win sure. from all this liability, and that's all he has going for him now because everything else is crumbling. Like, if he doesn't win the presidency, like, he doesn't have anything else other than continuing to grift but even the grift like that's a means to an end the whole basis of the grift is he's running again and so he's channeling all of that anger that resentment that victimhood into another run so he likely won't be as successful with that grift post-election assuming that he doesn't win and so that's why the focus is on running again but when trump ran the first time there was he wasn't Reagan. He wasn't the, the happy, smiling warrior that everybody liked about Reagan. No, it was doom and gloom. But there was, there was a bounce to him. There was an energy to him. 
he was having fun and you could see that. And because he was having fun, that was the energy he put out. That was, that was something that he could easily project to the people he was talking to through the media. Right. When Trump was doing something, you had to pay attention. I don't know if that holds anymore. I mean, Trump at this stage is just kind of a, I don't know what he is. Like I said, his speech after the indictment was all teleprompter. I thought it's like, here he goes. He's going to rip the lid off one and he's going to give us a 2015 style speech where he goes at everybody. And he was very, very subdued. I don't know if he's being told that, especially with the judge warning him multiple times, hey, you keep firing off like that on True Social, and there will be some repercussions for that. Well, it already it only took him four hours to ignore <laughs> what the judge said and go after the judge, the judge's daughter, yeah. wife, everybody. I yeah, mean, <laughs> and you know that's going to happen. Trump's not going to be able to keep himself in check. He doesn't abide by the rules. No, he doesn't, do. he doesn't do any of that. I so. did see a political article about an attendee at that Mar-a-Lago speech, rally, whatever you want to call it, and this guy's comments were very interesting to me because he compared, and this is a supporter, and so he was apparently doing this in a favorable light, but it doesn't come across as favorable to me. He compared Trump to Al Capone, <laughs> which I think is interesting because Al Capone was a gangster. He was yeah. a criminal, but Al Capone was also popular. There was that element of mass appeal and popularity. There was a segment of the American public that like you thought of him as a celebrity and here's this cool, tough guy, you know, just like, you know, taking it to the man and, you know, shaking his fists in front of the government. <laughs> And then this guy also said that he admitted, and this was, he was quoted in Politico that, you know, people don't learn and Republicans haven't learned. Trump came forward and hijacked the party and he's doing so again. Like he used the word hijack, which again, I thought was interesting from a supporter, which again is a hundred percent true. Trump has hijacked the party and the party continues to just genuflect towards him because they don't know what to do or anything else. And, and they're letting him do exactly what he did in 2016 all over again. But you're right. The energy isn't there, um, th which is a marked turn from uh, 2016. Yeah. Even when he, if you look at when he was happy, when he was angry, like that energy was present in all of those emotions in 2016. And now he just looks exhausted and exasperated. I think exhausted might be, might be the best word. I don't know how anybody could go through what he has put himself through in the past year, year and a half and, and still be mentally up for another presidential run. You, there's no way Trump just flames out. Does he? There, there's no. no way, like in September, October, Trump just says, piss on it. I'm not running. I, I don't see that. Because, again, it, <laughs> he is in too much legal jeopardy to do that. And so this is all, like, it's his only hope. I, I mean, he has nothing else. So I think he ha he's going to continue with this. I, I don't see him not um, in the absence of, of something significantly catastrophic that would shake things up. But otherwise, no, it's not going to happen. The only thing that's interesting to me here politically is the payment to the doorman that's in the, um, in, 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 in the indictment. And the only thing that's interesting about that is NBC came out and said that it was to pay for hush money for a kid Trump had out of wedlock. No, nobody cares about that. That's almost to be expected. Do you think if, and I'm, I'm just surely speculating here, what if that were to pay for somebody's abortion? I'm trying to yeah. think, think through things that could come out in this indictment and in this process that could potentially hurt Trump. 
anything with having children or affairs, that, that's all baked in the cake. Nobody, nobody really cares. Is there anything that could be come out about Trump's personal behavior that would sway anybody, or we just pass that now? I mean, I feel like we're past that. I don't know. Like, I mean, even if it came out that Trump had paid for and procured not only a single abortion, but multiple abortions for multiple women, mm-hmm. I don't know that that would change anything. Because if you look back at the 2020 two midterms in Pennsylvania that didn't make a difference with Herschel Walker the Senate candidate who it came out twice that there were two different instances and people shrugged I mean it didn't I don't think that had any impact on his support his poll numbers that go down he lost but I think he would have lost by that amount anyway it was a close race still so and again he was a MAGA Trump endorsed candidate. So if it was Trump himself, it's even more likely that people want to desert him. Was it Dana Lash who had that disgusting rant with Walker? Oh yeah, who doesn't said, care if he's paid for a million abortions? Yeah, or, he's a vote in our way, and I don't care. Right. I mean, well, I, yeah, and I think she said she didn't care if he like killed a million baby yeah. bald eagles. She didn't care about the abortion, like as long as they had the numbers in the Senate, which I think is what the general consensus I mean, among his supporters. I give her an A for honesty. Yeah. So. It seems like, too, the Mar-a-Lago documents case has morphed into the Mar-a-Lago obstruction case. And from the reports coming out this week, Secret Service people are now uh, giving testimony to Jack Smith. That case seems to have expanded, and pieces seem to be kind of snapping into place pretty, pretty easily. Well, and we're learning, too, that there are now multiple instances where— Trump intentionally withheld documents and held documents back at various points when he was approached to to give those documents up. Yeah. So it, it goes beyond because I mean we've seen this with with Biden with Pence. It goes beyond the notion of you know you take documents with you and either you don't know or you're not paying attention um, and then you're called out on it. But when you are called to then hand over those documents and yeah. you don't over and over and over again, that's where you have the criminality that it's comes It's the cover-up, not the crime. Right. And it that's what's going to get him in at Mar-a-Lago. And it, I should say, and uh, uh, we have, so simultaneously, along with that, investi- as part of that investigation, um, we have the January 6th investigation, yep. which is also DOJ. And as part of that, Mike Pence has been compelled to testify. And he has and indicated he said today he's not going to appeal that. He's not going to appeal it. Yeah. So we're going to get to, to see Mike Pence testify on, on January 6th. So if you're Mark Meadows sitting there, do you say, well, shit, if he's testifying now, I have to testify because I don't know what he's going to say. Yeah. If I sit here and just, just remain silent and people start talking around me, I don't get in on if there's a deal to be had. I don't get my side. Of, it all is going to fall on me. It feels I think like, Mark Meadows has to break. I don't think, I think he's he has going to, to. Yeah. I mean, if Mark Meadows wants to be the fall guy for it all, he certainly can. But if he wants to avoid that, he's going to have to talk at some at some point in time. I, there's been people that know Mark Meadows well uh, who have indicated that when push comes to shove, um, he's going to protect himself. The only thing I've heard about Meadows is he will tell you one thing, turn around right to somebody uh, different while you're in the same room and tell him the exact opposite thing he just told oh, you. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he did that. He has last... no base. Yeah. No anchor, no, nothing. no, no, nothing. So we, we, I think we both think Trump's in a lot more legal jeopardy coming and the real serious stuff is Georgia and Jack Smith and that will come down, down, down the pike. Yes. Do you think there's any way Trump can get himself into so much legal trouble that he doesn't run? I know I joked about it, but do you think there's any way 
that this could force him out of the out of the race? Uh, I mean, I think it's possible, but it would have to be it would have to be so clear cut to where like, I mean, it cut into his ability to fundraise to the point where he was at kind of bankruptcy level. I think that would be the only way because I think by not running, it's a tacit admission of guilt or, and because the whole premise of him running for president again is that he's the victim and it allows him to propel that victimhood narrative. So if he doesn't do that, he's going to not only disappoint his supporters, like he's going to peel off a large, chunk of them because they will see that the battle is over like what you know they've been fighting for this last couple of years on his resurrecting his presidency and if he's not willing to do that himself then i mean what is there left so i think it, it would it would have to be financial tied to the criminal charges and it would have to be severe enough to where um like it would cripple him if he continued to run something of that nature. Otherwise, I think that he's going to continue. But I I think you just said something really important and interesting that they will, as long as he shows any energy in running for president, they will support him. Yes. They're not going to abandon him. Collapse. And he says, I'm out. That's the only thing that that I think withdraws yeah. Republican support. I, there will be nothing else. I guarantee. I don't care what comes out. I don't care what he's charged with. I do not think yeah. it will make a difference. And I think, with little exception, Republican elites and those in office, you might see those that have already tended to be critical uh, speak up. But you're not going to see large swaths of Republican leaders abandon him. Like uh, I, I think of. Kevin McCarthy. You're yeah. not going to see McCarthy no, desert no. him, despite all of this. But my final question about Trump. Did you see Lindsey Graham Tuesday night when he in it, it was it was the same thing he's done over and over. Where he's begging for dollars, he's begging for like dollars. he's doing the televangelist like appeal. Like what's so interesting? Give him three dollars. Did you see him physically? He's no. the same color as Trump is now. Oh, is did he? you see his hair? It's like he's doing his hair. It's like he's almost now That's trying creepy. to take on Trump's look. Persona, yeah. It, it's just... I, it, it, could you imagine, Craig, like if somebody had come to you 10 years ago, which at that time, you know, Lindsey Graham was this moderate, um, you know, Republican senator who was establishment, best friends with John McCain, John McCain ally, ally and um, and somebody would tell you, yeah, so, you know, after John McCain's passing, Lindsey Graham is going to basically betray him and become John Trump's or Donald Trump's BFF um, and literally do whatever he says and act like his uh, his uh, guard dog and go to bat for him every step of the way. Like, I would not have believed that it was such a 180 degree difference, but it's worked for him. He's played the part. Yeah. He's been able to grift off of that. He won re-election based on that. He did face a a primary that could have done him in. The social experiment I like to run is I just bring in a pallet full of money, and I just set the pallet full of money in front of you. Like, Brandon, this pallet of money is yours. But to get this pile of money, you have to debase yourself in these ways. And you have to continue. That's the word for it. it. It's constant debasement and, on 1C Graham's part. And once you think, oh shit, it can't get any worse than that, it it will. Yeah. But you get this big pilot of money. I, I, I've never had that, that presented to me in my life. I would think I would make the right choice. But Lindsey Graham, it's not about politics anymore. It's not about his political career. It's just about hanging on and getting on Fox and raising money. That, that's all yeah, that's doing. all it is.
You want to talk about, uh, well, we're going to talk about Tennessee, but maybe we start with the question I asked you before we turn the mics on. Is the Republican Party just determined to take everybody 30 and under and just drive the point home to them by just, you know, smacking them in the face every chance they get? We're not your party. We don't share your values. And you probably shouldn't consider voting for us. They've been doing that repeatedly. I don't know if you have a specific instance in mind this well, week. But. <laughs> let's just take Tennessee, for example, okay. when that horrific shooting that three children oh, yeah. and three, te- uh, three uh, teachers get shot. Uh, there's a protest at the Tennessee Capitol that led by students mostly. There is some mild violence and that there is some pushing. There is some shoving. A couple cops got shoved. Very, but nobody, nobody got killed, thank God. Nobody went to the hospital. There were no injuries. They got onto the floor of the house and they, uh, the house in, in Tennessee with bullhorns, whistles, and they were chanting over gun control. And three lawmakers. Three lawmakers were who were Democrats, two African-Americans and a woman joined them. And for their trouble, Tennessee voted today with their supermajority on the Republican side to kick those people, those duly elected officials who were elected by the good people of Tennessee, they decided to get rid of them. It's an extreme reaction. I thought at most they would have censored them, you know, a motion of condemnation or contempt. But to expel them, that rarely happens in American politics. In fact, it usually only happens for extremely high crimes and misdemeanors. And the fact that it happened over this, because the question I have is, so now the people in those three legislative districts have no representation I was going to ask you, what, what happens? Do those I, seats just stay empty? Are there I, special I, elections? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know Tennessee state law if they do special elections or if they do appointment. And, and what comes into play for someone being expelled, because that rarely happens. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've not uh, been able to research that. But regardless, even if there's a special election, that's going to be at least a month or two. So you're going to have a couple months where these people have no representation at all. And it's just but it's the hardball that they're playing now. Republicans are playing in a lot of state houses. Right. It's the uh, and it's it's fascinating to me that that's a direction they want to go. Uh, and, you know, it's there's a I guess an instance too um, this week in North Carolina where they're passing a new abortion ban. They had needed their one vote short of yeah. an override of the Democratic governor, and so they had a Democrat who then flipped. they flipped. Yep. Um, so again, but I think especially when just to go back to the mass shootings and gun control, this is an issue where it's like over ninety percent of young people under the age of forty. And especially if you're talking about Gen Z, uh, this is one of the animating, top animating issues of their generation. And to just completely ignore that or to be flippant about it, which there was a Tennessee lawmaker who said, well, there's nothing we can do. It just is the way it is. Like, that is just insane to me because they are losing this generation for decades if they'll ever get, get those votes back or have them in play. And it's not just that generation either. There's been some interesting polling on... Uh, suburban voters who are in their um, 40s and 50s now who would have been like Bush 2004, Mm -hmm. Bush 2000 voters, like traditional Republicans that were part of the suburban shift over to the Democrats in 2018 and 2022. Like these are people that have kids now in school that care about gun violence that have softened their views when it has come to uh, gun laws. And they are also concerned and care about this. And so 
the Democrats are winning those people over too. And so the Republicans are proposing anything. There's there's not coming to the table yeah, with it's a good point. anything. Here here's some here's a, some stats for you. This is a poll from Axios did. They polled a thousand parents in Nashville to talk about gun control, school shootings, and gun control specific to schools. Here here's what the Republicans seem to be on the wrong side of. Um, 70% believe students would, would, schools would be safer if there were background checks for all, all gun sales. 63% of student of sub parents believe, uh, students would be safer if families and law enforcement could temporarily restrict a person's access to firearms. 53% believe the age to purchase a gun should be 21. 83% believe schools are safer with one or more school school resource officials inside the building. Uh, 35% believe schools would be safer if teachers were armed. My point in this is, so on a day that there is a tragedy, maybe like never been before in, in your state and the Republican reaction to that tragedy are things like, we don't, we can't fix this. The impression they give is nothing will be done and, and we don't care about this. And the constituency in Nashville these are their beliefs on, on, on gun control. Right. This is a, a consensus issue. This that is a they red state, and it's a reminder control. that this issue cuts across all Correct. party lines, all political persuasion. And you think this is the issue to swing it around and kick these three people out. And I'll say it again. I believe, I'll have to double check this, but I think the two black representatives they kicked out were two of, of three only black representatives in the state legislation. I think you're right, yeah. So, again— Republicans, what what are you do? Just from a sheer political, put everything else out of the way. This makes absolutely no sense, and it just continues a trend for Republicans, who when they do something, when they have a win from a conservative or from a, a Republican lens, if it's a win on something that is not supported across the country or locally in the community that you're in, like gun control, like abortion, you'd better have a plan to articulate what your next step is. And the Republicans just seem to fall flat-footed on this again and again and again. Right. And this is a, a huge escalation for for, for them. Now, suddenly, if you don't like a policy, we're just going to vote you out. The, the, we're going to get to Wisconsin a little bit later, but there was a dude running for the state legislation in Wisconsin, and he was running on, if the wrong candidate wins for Supreme Court, we'll just impeach that person day one. Yeah, which, again, insane. Like, it's, and it's totally an F you to the voters and to how democracy works, right? So it betrays all of that. It, it, it all bubbles into this democracy narrative, right? I mean, democracy only works when you have electeds that are willing to abide by what the people want and who are listening to the voices of their constituents. And when they don't, like eventually it's going to bubble over. I mean, that it, you can't sustain that. And so, you know, I would not be surprised to see if there's a major grassroots effort in Tennessee to register voters, to change elections, look at which elections are on the margins that can have a, an impact. Because you, you can only ignore the voters for so long and not expect yeah. pushback. I mean, if your opposition party in elections, the Democrats, kind of successfully used the democracy is under threat message in the midterms, which did resonate with folks, do you think this is your go-to move? Do you think throwing duly elected folks out because you have a political disagreement 
is the way to go. The Republicans just seem absolutely rudderless at this point in time. And this thing in Tennessee, to your point, this is going to backfire on them. Yeah. I don't see how it how it does. It, it. it most assuredly will. Uh, so you had alluded to Wisconsin, and so yeah. this was a very momentous week. It was election day this past Tuesday in many parts of the country. So there were two races that I wanted to draw attention to. So Chicago had, had a big mayoral race. Um, so Brandon Johnson, who is the progressive there. He's another Lori Lightfoot, is he? Uh, it, it seems like it. Yeah. I mean, he, but even I think more outwardly progressive. So he won a close race. I think it was like 51 49 against Paul, uh, Vallis, who was a former like school commissioner, but who was, um, the big difference between them. Paul Vallis was more conservative when it came to like policing and crime. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I do fear that Democrats may look at this and take the wrong, uh, go away with the wrong message. Yeah. And and instead of, because what happened, if you look at this race, it was a very close race, but also Brandon Johnson, who was the candidate who had called for defunding the police Mm -hmm. in the past, basically disavowed that for his general election campaign and actually promised to hire more police officers as well as put more money into mental health and everything. The big difference, one of the big differences, um, was that, his opponent um, was even more aggressive in terms of hiring police and stopping crime in Chicago, which has increased as long as it has in many major cities. But uh, Brandon Johnson also campaigned on uh, higher taxation for the city's wealthiest residents. So again, very tight race. In the end, both candidates acknowledged the issue of crime and the need for more police. Uh, but I I hope it doesn't give Democrats the idea that somehow they can point to him and say, see, we can yeah. you know go ahead and say defund the police and it'll make a difference. When as, that's not the case, that he had to backtrack on that to win. As a Republican, are you dismayed by that election result? I've listened to a couple conservatives today who just are almost throw their hands up in the air and say, I, I can't tell you what's wrong with Chicago. They went from Lori Lightfoot, who was a progressive, who was an unmitigated disaster, and they jumped right back in into the same thing. And if you're a conservative, if you're a Republican, there's some reaction like, I, 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 I give up. Nothing we're ever going to say. It's never going to get bad enough in certain places that somebody would listen to an alternative talk track about but, a way, a direction to go. But see, I, and I don't take that at all because I think it's it, that's extrapolating too much from one big city race, right? I mean— Throw and, the midterms in there too. How bad does it have to get until— this turn to conservatism. Happens. Well, true. I, 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 well, and I think that's that's something notable because I think too. One thing Republicans are going to have to learn is that uh, they the progressive boogeyman that they've used in so many races, and particularly using the fear of crime and the police, like that only goes so far. I mean, they they try that again and again and again. That only went so far. It was fairly, I think, ineffective during the 2022 midterms uh, because I think people are getting more nuanced and kind of seeing through that and realizing that there's much more at play in terms of solving the the crime issue. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, part of the issue too is that I think both sides will likely try to take things away from the Chicago race and, and yeah. you know, extrapolate them on a national scale. But at the end of the day, Chicago had a very ineffective mayor 
who did not make it past the primary. And then, you know, they had a choice between a, you know, someone who was fairly conservative to one was fairly progressive and the very progressive candidate won, but still won in a very close race. And Chicago is a very liberal city. And so at the end of the day, I think it shows that even the most liberal city, like voters want solutions and they're looking for candidates that will provide that. And, you know, and whether you're progressive or you're conservative, if you're not effective and you don't seem to be solving anything or putting forward anything, which was Lori Lightfoot's challenge, you're yeah. going to you're going to lose. And that's what happened. But we can tie this back into Wisconsin. But what, what I'm hearing more and more out of out of um, conservatives is a little bit of they're exasperated around how bad does it have to get? before you turn from the course you're on. I think I well, think conservatives are trying to develop the talk track that America is in absolute decline. We're in a spot lower than we've ever been in most people's lifetimes. Crime is a problem. We've got wars overseas, inflation. We have all of these things. Nobody says Biden is is the most effective president of all time. Even if he's effective, is 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 debatable. And I see conservatives more and more being like what? What would we have to do? I get it. We're not offering a lot. They're not offering an alternative at all. how do you keep looking at that and saying, yep, that, that's the direction we're going? But I, I think that, well, and it probably fails to notice that there are places where there have been voter revolts and changes. Like San Francisco, there was yeah. a revolt against their DA sure. who was notoriously uh, soft on crime. And San Francisco is about as liberal as you can get. And they said, okay, wait, that's about too far for us. And so they elected a replacement DA who's also a Democrat, but is much more traditional when it comes to fighting crime. So same with their school board. So there are instances where things do get too bad and where voters tend to rent things in. Another one was um, uh, in Seattle, which I think this would have um, a couple years back, um, voters actually elected a Republican uh, DA, um, yeah. which is, again, like the last time that happened was like 40 years ago in that very blue city. But again, someone who ran on a fairly moderate platform saying, let's get back to basics, you know, put more money into the streets and fighting crime. So there are instances of that happening. Um, so a, it will, if things get too bad, but again, you also have to have the right candidate. Who's not going to just demagogue the issue, but who's also going to say, this is what I'm going to do realistically to solve it. And I'm going to be very upfront and I'm going to have actual policy proposals. And, and that is what can cause them to win, but you can't just be, you know, somebody who's a self-branded demagogue and go out there and just like screech the same you know, message over and over and expect that that's going to do it. Wasn't that the dude the Republicans ran for Supreme Court? It was. He fits your description to a T. Dan Kelly. So uh, so Wisconsin had their state Supreme Court election this past Tuesday. And it's notable because it is one of the uh, handful of states, I think six, that directly elect their Supreme Court justices. Pausing there for a second. That sounds like that's a horrible idea. Horrible. I have a lot of issues with that. The fact, yeah, they raise money, get political, and then you get into conflicts of interest. This was the most expensive judicial election in U.S. history, and it was critical because it decided the majority on the court. So um, there was a lot going into it. Dan Kelly, the Republican, was a former Supreme Court justice, and he was running again for an old seat. He was broadcasting his views on all types of political issues, abortion. He was even telling people how he was going to rule on those issues. His opponent was uh, Janet Protasiewicz, who's a Milwaukee County judge, and um, on the liberal side. Um, So she won, and not even close, by 11 points. Very convincing win. 
And uh, she hammered the issue of abortion because what a lot of people outside the state don't know is that when uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, Wisconsin had an 1849 abortion law on the books that basically said uh, everything reverted back to that pre-Roe v. Wade. And it, uh, it made abortion illegal except in cases of the mother's life being at stake. That was the only exception. So abortion has been illegal in Wisconsin since last summer, since the Supreme Court reversal. And uh, in the absence of the state Supreme Court uh, ruling any differently. So now with the flip in the majority, four to three liberal majority, not only can they uh, rectify that and probably legalize abortion again, but even bigger than that is Wisconsin is one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Mm-hmm. So the Democratic incumbent Governor Tony Evers won re-election 51 to 49 last year in the midterms, but yet Republicans returned a supermajority to both houses of legislature. And it's a 50-50 state. Uh, Democrats have won it, uh, won it in last election by like 20,000 votes. Biden won it. But before that, Trump won it by about 16, 15,000 um, so it's always razor's edge, but you wouldn't know that in terms of their uh, uh, the allocation of seats in their state house yeah. and state senate because it's so lopsided the way they've drawn these districts because they've put all the Democrats into a handful of super solidly you know eighty percent blue mm-hmm. districts and then spread out the others and yeah. marginal seats. So what's g- big about this is that the Supreme Court will be able to, and will likely hear a case where they will redraw the state legislative boundaries and you could see a makeup of the legislature legislature that's much more representative of the state as a whole, which you don't have now. Yeah. And so that's why this is also so critical. And it, it just adds a narrative, too, that abortion politics continue to work in the Democrats' favor because the Republicans do not have a good answer to that. And um, and Roe v. Wade has just completely changed the game and energized the left. This is what I don't get. That election was obviously a referendum on abortion in Wisconsin. Everybody knew that. The The person they picked to run dan is dan last kelly he he did lost. you see his concession speech uh, what an asshole oh yeah i mean it wasn't just, even a con- like i mean a he dick. yeah he just called his opponent a liar said she wasn't worthy which that is again well, unprecedented he he lost a statewide election i believe for attorney general i think that's right yeah so just just talk about candidate selection he he'd already lost a a statewide election and apparently couldn't hire anybody who could come up with a single marketing message to the voters around abortion. What is the Republican stance on abortion? It's super defensive mode now because, I mean, they they basically have nothing and they are being pushed to the extreme, which they never had to prior yeah. because Roe v. Wade was somewhat of a shield for them because there was always going to be that safe, legal, rare component. So you could, you know, whittle at the edges and, and put restrictions in place, but you knew abortion would never be completely illegal because you had the Roe v. Wade yeah. umbrella and that's gone now. And Ronna Romy McDaniel, I probably said her name <laughs> wrong. She, she just was on TV the other day and just literally threw her hands up and said, guys, I don't know what to tell you. Abortion is an issue. I hear it from every young person. My daughters talk about it to me all the time. I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to talk about it in some way. Oh, I didn't say that. That's now, pretty, yeah. But she didn't offer any suggestions or uh, any well, talk track there, that there lies the problem. She was basically just saying, hey, guys, I know this is hard. But this is kind of on each look. Don't look to the central party to give you any help with messaging on this issue. So if you recall, Craig, um, back when Roe v. Wade was overturned, the big case 
that the country was focused on was the Kansas abortion amendment, yeah. which kind of started the domino effect. Yeah. And and obviously here in Kansas, I think it was a 19, 20 point win um, for uh, against that amendment. And you saw counties in Kansas outside of our suburban enclaves, Johnson County, and of course the blue Wyandotte and, and uh, Douglas County, you saw rural counties that are heavily Republican also vote against that amendment. And so similar to that, I was thinking at that, those results and how abortion, uh, as particularly when it comes to the core accessibility of abortion, you know, just getting beyond restrictions and all of that, how that cuts across political lines. We saw that in Kansas, but we also saw that in Wisconsin, because if you look at a map of which counties voted for this very liberal Supreme Court um, nominee, uh, Milwaukee County, which is liberal, not only voted for her, but overwhelmingly, it was like 75, 25. So, uh, and then you have uh, the uh, Madison County where the University University of Wisconsin. So it voted um, 80, like to 16%, like overwhelmingly. And then even counties that that she did not win, uh, Racine County, which is the home turf of Paul Ryan and has been a rock rib Republican County for generations. She only lost by 2%. It was 51, 49. Like that type of margin is unheard of in a Republican county like that. And then you go Green Bay, which used to be fairly conservative one time. It went blue for this nominee. So if you look at the map, you kind of you see the trend lines and how abortion politics change political outcomes. And we're seeing that in real time. If I'm a politician on any level and I'm a Republican and I'm watching a news story about what happened in Wisconsin and I'm looking at the lines of kids voting at the University of Wisconsin, that sends a little bit of a chill up and down my spine. Yeah, I, think, I, I know I've got to find a way to at least talk to that to that crowd. So these elections, I think turnouts aver- turnout usually averages around fifteen percent. Like turnout was over thirty percent. I think it was like thirty five percent. Like it was it was huge. And for that's past what years. that's what the reversal of Roe did. It yeah. basically means young people now will vote in midterms and special elections if abortion is on the ballot. And that's what we saw in Kansas, right? Yeah, there, for the absolutely. abortion amendment, we saw just shy of 50% turnout. It was like 49, 48%. I've said this for years. The last thing the Republicans wanted was a reversal of, of Roe v. Wade. And I think if, you, if they had their pick and they said, could, you, you could go back in time and you could go with what Roberts was trying to do. Basically, keep the constitutional right to an abortion intact, just throw off all of the bullshit that Roe created with these trimesters and stuff, which I agree was completely illegal, made up, and should never been part of the, of, of, of the decision. Roberts, I think, was onto the right track. Keep the basic right legal, throw out all of the term stuff, which was dumb to begin with, mm-hmm. and let the states decide that. That Re- would have let been the states much regulate around the correct. margins in terms of like before this is viability. This is what's allowed. This what's do allowed. do your thing. I, that would have been a much better solution politically, I think, for for Republicans than a complete reversal. Oh yeah, it would have been better for the court too, which has lost a lot of standing. I want to take our last five six minutes here to talk a little bit about about Twitter because I'm you and I both come from a technology industry background. Yeah, and I've mentioned before it has done my product <laughs> management heart. Just, just, I'm like the Grinch. My heart grew three times the size the day that Elon Musk couldn't decide what to price his product, Twitter Blue, and finally just went with what somebody said and says, there, it's, it's eight bucks. That, that made me warm all over to know that the smartest man in the world had no better idea about how to price a, a software package as you or I or anybody else we've ever worked with. 
has. Yeah. That the same difficulties that everybody struggles with, even Elon Musk. This guy that we thought with. of as a genius. Yeah. Here, here's what I don't get. If you know you're having advertising problems and people are fleeing your platform, wouldn't you try to be as stable as you could to promote stability in the platform to get your advertisers back? Most of these are big companies that really don't like wacky behavior, don't like you suspending people for no reason, don't like you calling NPR state-run uh, media. Uh, media for some reason. Um the, that account, Buttigieg, B- Biden, whatever, I'm, say, I'm butchering this horribly. There's an account that got suspended in Twitter yesterday. And all the dude does is post dog and panda videos. <laughs> he got suspended because there's something about music in the background or, or something. But I think we can all say, since, since Musk took over Twitter, Twitter has gotten progressively worse. And his, his scheme to build revenue based off of Twitter Blue has been a complete flop. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the whole idea that the blue check mark would convey legitimacy is out the window. I mean, if anybody can just pay for it, it, it loses all meaning and value. It's just a sign of, you know, somebody who, who wants to, you know, shell out eight bucks a month for it. And I think Musk just had a, a, a basic misunderstanding of what he bought. And... In Musk's own words, what he wants to do with Twitter is he wants to turn it into WeChat. WeChat is the one app um, that is used in China, and it is everything. It is your Twitter. It is your texting app. It is how you pay your bills. Everything runs through WeChat. This is what Musk wants this is what Musk wants to build Twitter in. That's not me saying that. That's his own words. Well, and that's so unlikely to happen here because, I mean, the dynamics of China as an authoritarian state, you're much more likely to have a unitary one-size-fits-all app that is like the app for everything, uh, particularly because you can limit competition by the government can at that highest levels. But, I mean, that type of model just isn't that workable here. I mean, I don't see that you would ever get to that state. Twitter is a word-based. You have to type on Twitter. Right. That's why it's the smallest install base of all the social media apps. That's why my kids aren't on Twitter. That's why Twitter's big hook were journalists and news, people who would, could actually write out information in a coherent manner. If you look at any other social media, it's all videos. Videos or images, yeah, when, Snapchat, when, when Instagram. When my daughter has Snap- a conversation on Snapchat, they just make a little speaking video and send it. They, they don't type anything. Yeah. So Musk, I think, fundamentally didn't understand what he bought and then has this grand plan to turn it into something that I don't think anybody's asking for or the government would allow to exist, even if he could get that that direction. Yeah. And isn't Twitter like at half the value he paid for it at this point? Their recent it's- eval, because he just did some some things for compensation for internal employees, it just listed at $20 billion. So he's hmm. lost $24 billion wow. in value off of that in six months or something like that. It just—I I just— Musk to me just it's it's almost like Trump. You're stepping in places that yes, your expertise in running a business is going to help you, but you also need to admit I don't know everything about this. And there's a methodology that you could follow to learn more about it, or you could just decide it's mine and I'll do with what I want. Has Twitter from a a um, a censorship point perspective has it gotten any better? I mean, no, Trump I, has suspended journalists. There's people who say that that he's suppressing their Elon. Yeah, their uh, yeah. Musk is is suspended journalists. People's tweets aren't getting out. And by Musk's own words, he said, "You are entitled to free speech, not reach." 
If you don't pay me, I'm not putting your your stuff out. But people that criticize him have been suspended, like personally. Yeah. I mean, so again, he's he has shown himself as well to be very thin skinned when it comes to the platform. I'm not saying that it was great under the last regime, but it certainly hasn't improved here. No, it's only deteriorated. And yeah. it's gotten to the point now where people are asking for their check marks to be taken away because they don't want to be lumped into this group of rubes that paid Elon Musk for this this meaningless check mark. Right. That's it's a disaster. That's a complete, complete fail on, on his did part. We, we, did we talk about the Dogecoin thing? No. Oh, we even get to that. He's getting sued for that, too. Yeah, which I, I didn't know that until you brought that up. That yeah, he's actually he's currently sued. getting sued. I think for two hundred fifty billion dollars because basically Dogecoin was a giant Ponzi scheme yeah. that he promoted and then walked away when it collapsed. And so for those that don't know, like for many users, when they log into Twitter, they see the the dog logo of Dogecoin. Yep. And if you didn't know, like you would be like, okay, why is this dog now appearing in my? before I get to my Twitter feed. That's why, like, this was part of Elon and the self-promotion because he had a stake in Dogecoin. Is that how you say Dogecoin? I think so. Yeah, big one in Dogecoin. Yeah, very big one. So, and again, it also just represents this intermingling of his financial interests, right? Like, he does not keep things separate. We changed tax accountants last year, and the first question the new guy asked us, do you have any cryptocurrency? Because if you do, I will not do your taxes. Really? Wow. I laughed. I said, we don't. He's like, you would be shocked at the number of people your age, I'm 53, who their whole retirement (gasps) plan is they bought a bunch of penny crypto stock or crypto coin, and if it gets to, you know, a dollar, they're millionaires. And, And that was their retirement plan. Why would you do that? I just, I don't understand that. I think you get, you realize you're like in the seventh inning. You don't have a lot of time left and you got to make a big shot. And yeah. that's, that, that's a big shot. Oh, it's so dangerous. So but, risky. But I've, it's, it's been interesting watching Twitter kind of slowly decline and yeah. watching Trump or not Trump, watching Musk just not seem Freudian to understand. <laughs> they're about the same person. Just not understand where he's at, what he's doing and what he bought. You didn't buy a digital town square. No. A town square implies a small town with trusted information. That's not, that's not at all what, what you have. And the strength of it was the blue check marks that were earned by people that you could actually feel comfortable that you were reading something newsy related that at least had a chance of being true. And that's just not happening anymore. Well, he's done everything to reduce the guardrails, right? I mean, he's put, you know, basically cut the moderation staff. He's so it's not even what it once was and it was never robust to begin with but now there's virtually like no moderation and you see it like i mean i just noticed that there's a lot more of what i consider troll accounts probably yeah. fake bot accounts from who knows where yeah. uh, where there's no identity that's discernible or attached to them so it's a it's a big problem i might reach out to jason and say if he wants to pod with us in the next couple of weeks because we could spend an hour talking oh, about ai too it would be great to do an uh, ai one with him and what's yeah. coming with that because there's some things i, I understand understand some basic terms but it's easy to get lost in well and it's just evolving so rapidly yeah. too i mean no, nobody can keep up that's a scary and thing. no one's putting a six-month block on this that no. that that's that that's just a dumb idea no and that's I, not how innovation i works. have some thoughts on what needs to happen to just try to kind of rein it in at least from the standpoint of knowing what's true and what isn't because i think if we don't I, that's what i'm most fearful about in the next presidential election because we're going to have ai run amok we're going to have deep fakes galore we're going to have <laughs> you know the voice impersonations of various political uh candidates and, and people and so it's going to be extremely challenging to be able to tell what is true what isn't and i mean we're going to see disinformation on a scale like we've never seen it 
Brandon, make me feel better. And tell <laughs> me who the next president of the United States is going to be. Uh, I don't. I can't. Yeah, I, I got no clue. I can't. Ugh. So we're back to having it 100 degrees in the studio. We're back to the bands playing. That's good. Now we just have to get our transition to our, our ending segment where we talk about what we're doing better. Yes. Because we've been kind of stumbling into that one. Yeah, that's been a little well, bit awkward. Usually it's because we're not doing anything really that interesting and we're trying to reach <laughs> right. for something that's doing it. Um, let's see. <clears throat> my wife just ran through the, the night agent show on Netflix. I want to see that. I have that on my watch list. I she slammed that down in like two days and said it was really good. So it looks like a really easy watch too. Okay, good. Yeah. I'll need to, so it's not that many episodes. Is it like it's a series? Oh, it's okay. your standard 10. So gotcha. you can, you can run through them pretty quickly and it's espionage stuff. So that yeah. looks pretty so good. So in that same vein, there's a new, um, now that I think of it, I don't know if it's a movie or it's a series. It's content that's coming <laughs> to Netflix uh, called The Diplomat with Carrie Russell. I don't know if you've seen the trailers oh, for that. Oh, she's one of my favorites. So that from looks really interesting. So yeah, so she plays basically like a ambassador's wife who gets caught up in this espionage and has to take over for him. Uh, and there's Chinese and Russian and Iranian intrigue involved. It looks very interesting. And like you said, I love her from the Russians. Um, and she seems to be in that type of serious role like yeah. in this series. So I can't wait to see that. I might be admitting too much, but I find her amazingly attractive too. Oh yeah, I think she very much is, yeah. Is there, um, have you gone to the movies, actually gone back to the movie theater to see anything recently? Or is that something that, because you were a big movie guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, You've I got the Stubbs card. Is yes. that still going? I, I go to movies often, yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to see, I think the last movie I saw was like two weeks ago, though. It's been a while. There are a couple of movies that I want to see. But also, it's been like slow. There haven't been like any like There's really that. big blockbusters. Is it, is it enjoyable as I think it is? to go to an afternoon movie, maybe by yourself, and just sit quietly and enjoy a movie you want to see without people around oh, you Oh, I like that. the time. Yes, I mean, I appreciate it because the movie theater is one place where you can close yourself off to because you're not on your phone. You don't have distractions. You're not, like, there are noises yeah. or pets or people. Like, you can just kind of zone, yeah. you know, and focus on the movie and kind of immerse yourself in the movie. And that's what's really nice. Um, oh, so the other... So I, I saw the most recent Scream movie, but I guess the, the very last movie I saw was Cocaine Bear. Is uh, that any good? Just it was as funny. a fun, goofy Oh, thing? yeah. If you want to just go see a goofy, like, laugh-your-ass-off yeah. movie that is not serious, like, go see it. It is hilarious. Like, you will get a lot of laughs out of it. Like, it's it's worth it to see just for that. And it's the great reason. Ray Liotta's last role. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So... Ray Liotta looked like he was on cocaine all the time. Well, he just it, had that <laughs> look about him, like, I'm coked out of my mind. Well, and he plays the bad guy in this movie. Like, he's the, yeah. like, uh, drug runner yeah. who is, like, trying to reclaim the, the drugs that have been left. So it's... Uh, it's worth it to see him in that. And I want to see the new John Wick movie, but I've not seen that yet. It's I've like three really hours good. long. It's yeah, good. I've heard it's really, really I've good. heard it's really good, too. Th- this has to be the last of John Wick, isn't it? I think it is. I think I this mean, is the final one. Keanu Reeves is approaching 60, I would guess, or he's in his mid-50s. I mean, it's got to be hard to make those films after a while. Oh, yeah. I think he's, yeah, he's getting up there, and so I, <laughs> I don't expect that we'll see any more. And then it's interesting. There's going to be a final Indiana Jones movie out with Harrison uh, Ford. I did. Harrison Ford is my hero because at 81, 
Yeah. He's carrying that 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 shit that series. Nineteen twenty three. Okay, he carried nineteen twenty three, which and then, was excellent. Excellent. And then Shrinking. shrinking my what, wife loved that. I love Shrinking. Like I am all I, I have finished that season now. And there's and a so movie coming out. Yes. That's that's insane. I mean, so he went through a period where he like he wasn't in anything, and now he has all these projects that are coming out. It's crazy um, how much his he's divorce doing. is behind him. Remember, he set the record when he divorced Callista Flockhart, the oh, chick I who played Ali McBeal, yeah. and he had to give her like a hundred and fifty million dollars or of something. Money, yeah, I remember my dad called me one day, very upset by that. <laughs> he's like, "That's just not right. That's just not right." <laughs> well, that's law, Dad. All right, uh, that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.